Hi, and welcome to Scott Roche's Omniverse. This week we have a special uh, twofer for you, if you will. Uh, in addition to the regular story, The Grimoire, read by Paul E. Cooley, I also have the first chapter of Ginny Dare Crimson Sands. It's taken me much longer to get to working on this than I would have liked, but that's okay. Uh, I finally got all the audio from my various voice actors, and I decided to go ahead and put together the first chapter and drop it in the feed for you. So the first story, The Grimoire, is, uh, as I said, read by Polly Cooley, one of my favorite horror authors in the new media sphere. Uh, This is a really short piece, and it takes place in the same universe as a couple of other stories that you've heard in the podcast so far. Uh, This takes place in Lumiere, which uh, I've had at least one story featuring Old Will, who is the proprietor of The Grim Reader, and uh, so that's that's, uh, where The Grim War takes place, and uh, Paul did a masterful job reading it, as I expected. Uh, Also, after you hear that, you'll hear the first chapter of Jeannie Dare Crimson Sands. I want to give a big thanks to the voice actors in this chapter. Uh, We have Nuchas, who voices Jenny and also does the narration. Doc Coleman, who plays Brad the AI. He's really got a brief appearance in this chapter, but uh, you'll see more of him later. Michael Faulkner, uh, who does a good job playing Fred Hicks. And David Grizzly-Smith, who plays Walter Dare, Jenny's dad. Without further ado, here is this episode's stories. Hope you enjoy them, and we'll see you next time. This is Paul Ellard Cooley. You can find my dark fantasy and thriller fiction at shadowpublications.com. The Grim War Bobby stopped his bike outside the freaky old bookstore he had found on his family's first week in Lumiere. The Grim Reader sounded like just the place to kill a few hours while he waited for Mom to finish some laundry up the street. He went in and was hit by the peppery smell that all good used bookstores have. There was also something just under that smell that he couldn't put his finger on. There was a creepy-looking old guy at the counter who looked up and smiled in a way that made him shiver. He felt like going right back out, but the need for a new read was overpowering. This dust bowl of a town was already boring Bobby senseless. He headed back to the fantasy section, which got him out from under the ghoulish grin of the old man. He was browsing the shelves when he ran across the latest Rowling book. It was a pristine hardcover. Bobby thought that was weird to have in the midst of all these oldie moldies. He snatched it up and plopped in an old musty chair. He flipped it open and discovered to his amazement that it was signed on the flyleaf. To be. Life's short. Enjoy. J.K. His eyes almost fell out of his head. He held his place and flipped the book around to see what the thing cost. He felt a sharp pain in his finger and dropped the book. Damn, paper cut. His finger went immediately into his mouth. He pulled his finger back out and looked at it. It was more than a paper cut. There was a huge gash there. Then he felt a pain bigger than the world coming from his right foot. He looked down and the book had closed on his ankle, and it looked like it was chewing. His foot was disappearing into the book. It was then that he started to scream. The proprietor... Old Will, as the townsfolk knew him, looked up at the ruckus. Damn, he whispered. He went out front, looked up and down Grief Street, and snatched the bike into the store when he saw no one was looking.
He wheeled it to the back and grabbed the boy's pack and put both in the storage room. He'd have to put them in the furnace later. He went back to the musty old chair and picked up the leather-bound book the boy had dropped. He put it back on the shelf. Children are just so careless these days. Need to treat books with more respect. Jenny Dare, Crimson Sands, Chapter 1 Jenny called up her workload for the day. They were due to enter the Scalesley system today, and she looked forward to making landfall. Granted, that wasn't going to happen for at least two full days after leaving warp space, but it gave her something to think about other than the sameness of shipboard duty. She grimaced when she saw the homework Brad, the ship's AI, had supplied her. It was the standard fare, so she couldn't blame him. In fact, after looking more closely, she saw he had thrown a surprise at her. A square grid of symbols faced her when she opened the document. She recognized the symbols as those of the natives on Eshu, the planet on which they were due to land. Meeting with them wasn't on the agenda, so far as she knew. At last report, the colonists there had little interaction with them, thanks more to the natives than to any reluctance on the humans' part. Still, Jenny had been studying up on their language, and she wanted to be able to at least recognize it. This was more than simply an exercise in symbol recognition. If she knew her tutor, there was at least three layers to this particular bit of encryption. Thanks, Brad. I'll have to work on that later, dear. She slid the file across the screen with a glance and put it in the dessert folder. Knowing it was there would make the business of work easier to complete. My pleasure, Jenny. Brad's warm, rich baritone was pleasant. She imagined him as an imposing figure in floor-length black robes, tonsure and all, like the monks in her ancient history files. When she managed to remember he was nothing more than glorified holographic storage, she came away disappointed. Bring up the latest traffic network for me. Her screen filled with a different sort of puzzle. The lines, squiggles, and characters showed her the communications grid for her ship, the local sector of space they occupied, and any intersector communications. Right now, only intraship communications displayed for her. If she watched it closely, every five minutes, she knew she'd see a squirt of data directed back to the nearest communications hub. That would be until they made the exit into real space. Her brain went on autopilot as she checked ship's logs. That and other reports told her what had been happening since she left her station last night. The great thing about a ship as small as theirs was they simply didn't need round-the-clock crew for all duty stations. When she graduated the academy and got stationed on a military cruiser, then things would be a little bit different. For now... As the sole communications officer for her family's one-ship operation, it was just her and Brad. The bulkhead door leading from crew quarters slid open. The pungent smell of black tea, spiced with cinnamon and cardamom, meant her dad was on deck. She swilled in her chair and leaned back. Hey, Dad. Mr. Dare? Fred Hicks, the only other crew member on deck, nodded at Walter from the navigation station. 
The broad-shouldered owner and operator of Dare Shipping nodded at his daughter and crewman. Morning. With that customarily terse greeting and sip from his huge mug, he sat down at the command station. The ship's bridge was shaped like one-third of a wedge of pie. Ginny's station was at the pointed end, while navigation and operations occupied spaces near the curved bit of bulkhead. They were separated by a third space that could be used by any crew member who wanted to sit on deck. One could sit nearly anywhere on board to perform their duties, but tradition was important, at least to her dad. His background in the sector defense force influenced the way he ran the ship, even though they weren't military. All three workspaces stood on the same level and featured the same relatively comfortable chairs and enough desk space to eat off of. A viewplate, stretching a meter on the diagonal, served as a focal point for each workspace. A similar plate spread out in front of her on the desk's surface, now showing a collection of pictures and silent videos she had taken in her travels. She had logged more time and space than anyone she knew her age, but the Helena was her home. Ginny returned her attention to the viewplate ahead of her and brought up a series of windows with flicks of her fingers and eyes. Satisfied everything was as it should be, she returned her studies to the foreground and brought Brad's matrix into focus over her lap. Coming out of warp space in 30 minutes, Mr. Dare. The very gambling drive is optimal, and engineering reports the main thrusters are ready to bring us in on schedule. Walter looked up from his reports over to the navigator. Thanks, Fred. I want us to be orbiting issue in 40 hours, if you can make it happen. A few taps later, and Fred met the company owner's gaze. Aye, sir, we can do it. Murphy says we should be able to make point three C. That will get us there ahead of schedule. Walter cracked a rare smile. Ginny could hear it in his voice. Excellent. I'm ready to shift this cargo. I think we need some time off. Ginny swung around in her seat. Really, Dad? You mean it this time? She tried to downplay her excitement. This ship was her home, but she wanted to feel something other than deck plates under her feet. No matter how nice the carpeting in her room was, the surface underneath was still unyielding. His smile widened as he turned to his daughter, but it looked hollow. Yes, love, I do. The smile faltered. You'll be headed to the academy soon, and we haven't spent nearly enough time together. He stood, a process which didn't increase his height much, and crossed to Fred's side. He clapped the younger man on the shoulder. Half of us did, sir. Fred reminded him tersely. But I take your point. As good as our halls have been, I'm ready to spend a few weeks dirt side. Maybe we can spend a couple of days exploring SU. Ginny tried not to sound desperate. Walter grimaced. It's not exactly a tourist haven. Still, the Changs set a fine table, and fresh air is fresh air. We'll see. Ginny turned back to her studies. There was a survey of the planet up on the screen. Dad was right. They limited terraforming on this world since the process was still expensive. There was also the matter of a sentient native population. As a result, the arid conditions and air quality kept it from being a pleasant stay anywhere outside of the colony's boundaries. She wanted to know more about the natives and see if she could learn anything about their culture. She also wanted to hear their language, since even the best recordings still lacked a certain something only an audiophile, an amateur linguist like her could pick up on.
a, we'll see, from dad was almost the same as a no. But she had a few days to work on him. She also couldn't wait to see Adelaide Chang. The two girls were born within a standard month of each other. They'd only met twice. Still, they were thick as thieves. As thick as you could get from text and audio messaging. The next 20 minutes passed by in a flash. Ginny had entered and exited warp space through the wormholes created by the Perry Gamblin Drive more times than she could count, each time as exciting as the last. She sort of knew how they worked, as much as anyone could without proper experience and degree. Still, the idea of punching holes into something that wasn't there excited her. The light shows were pretty fantastic, too. All stations secure for re-entry, sir. Hicks broadcast his readout, including both the countdown and the system map to the other bulkhead viewplate. The screen was also available on strategic plates around the ship so that everyone could see it. The 28 people on board were all awake and alert for this, regardless of their shift. A computer-generated version of what warp space looked like, if human eyes could have perceived it, made up most of the view. Shimmers of midnight colors, green, purple, and blue, all danced on the screen. Make it so, Hicks. Most people said that they couldn't feel anything. A few said that they always felt more real once out of warp space. Ginny still wasn't sure. That blew out of her mind, as it always did when she took in the scintillating colors. Energy from the peak as most people called it, poured through the emptiness and parted quantum threads. A second later, the Helena was in the Scalesley system. Hicks and Jess Murphy from Engineering went back and forth about bringing the thrusters online. Ginny only had eyes and ears for the data at her station. As soon as they broke into real space, she brought the communications network back up front. She didn't expect a great deal of traffic. They were still quite a distance from the planet, after all, but there was a buoy near the halfway point. She would connect to it and pull pertinent data from it. Stations this far out didn't have the communications boosters that a ship like theirs did. While extra sector mail would get through eventually, it would happen more quickly piggybacking on their equipment. Ginny didn't read any messages unless they were addressed to her, but as the data streamed by, she noticed a pattern. The last messages were from a day ago. That didn't strike her as odd until she looked more closely. There weren't many messages, so checking wasn't a hardship. But it looked like the carrier packets had also stopped yesterday. Even if there wasn't any mail traffic, per se, there should have been the occasional handshake between planetary systems and the buoy. Each made sure that the other was there and functioning as expected. The buoy also relayed data about any unusual objects entering the system. The buoy also relayed data about any unusual objects entering the system. An early warning system for everything from asteroids and comets to unexpected ships have saved more than one colony from unwanted guests. Everything was all right on the buoy side, but no packets came from the planet, and all of the queries from the buoy returned unanswered. This sector's defense force would have noticed, but that could take a week or more. Dad? We have a problem. She heard footsteps and could feel him looming over her shoulder. What is it? 
She gestured at the data. No word from the colony on Eshu for at least 20 hours. All communications are cut. Diagnostics won't tell me anything significant, since all buoy systems are green. I won't be able to get anything directly from Eshu for at least 8 to 12 hours. There was a little worry in her voice. She was a lifelong spacer, but she was also a 14-year-old girl. Walter picked up on the worry. It's okay. He looked over his shoulder. Hicks, I want Murphy to get me another .05C out of those engines. Aye, sir. The U.S. government created Division 10 to track down mysterious flyers possessing technology beyond our own. Now, a corporation, Typhon System-wide, plans to steal alien tech from the grasp of the Division, and they're willing to take down a president to do it. As Typhon's plans come to a head, something escapes from a burning building in New York City. Corporate mercenaries are on the way, and so are the black helicopters of Division 10. But there's another player in this game, and far higher stakes than control of a government or technology. The Flyers are back. Subversion, a science fiction adventure novel by John Miro. Conspiracies, spies, and aliens. In enemy lines, the lines aren't as clear as you think. Buy it now on Kindle. Learn more at servingworlds.com.